0: Hello, and welcome to the Downleak Podcast, brought to you by the University of Georgia's Small Satellite Research Laboratory. My name is Graham Grable, and this week on a special episode of the Downleak Podcast, I'll be talking to you about a NASA social and the past SpaceX CRS 9 launch and landing. Guess we should start from the very beginning. Uh, Sort of discussing about what a NASA social is. So when you take a look at space rockets and pictures and all that, that's usually coming from people who are affiliated with the media. So people from USA Today, people from Reuters, uh, people from news affiliate outlets like that are able to go to these launches, get special access, privileges, meet engineers and scientists and get an understanding of what's going on uh, with the launch, what type of experiments and payloads are going up, uh, depending on if it's a resupply mission to the International Space Station, or if it's just a satellite mission itself. But I was given an opportunity, through the NASA social program, to actually use my social media credentials, so using the Downlink podcast here, talking to you guys about space, CubeSats, and all that fun stuff, to actually do that myself. So although this opportunity is really open to news media outlets, I was given privilege out of 50 people to go ahead and tour Kennedy Space Center over this past weekend. If you're curious about how you can get involved with a NASA Social, just keep your eye out. I found out about this NASA Social through Twitter, actually, and they regularly put them out. So for any type of NASA mission, or NASA rocket testing, they'll be putting out NASA socials to help people get more involved with NASA, to help people understand more about what they're doing and how they can communicate that to their social community and to their friends. So be sure to look out on Twitter, Snapchat, or even Facebook for anything NASA social related. So now to dig into some of that nitty gritty stuff of the really cool and fun things that I participated in over this past weekend. So the day started out on Saturday, Saturday morning, and it started out very early, around 7.30 or, or 8 a.m. And we started off by heading off to the press accreditation office. And so I had to show two forms of ID, my driver's license and my passport, and I got a fancy name badge. And so basically that just clears me to uh, enter Kennedy Space Center with social media credentials. Um, we had two different buses uh, take us all the way into Kennedy Space Center the, with the more restricted parts of it. And before we got on those buses, they actually had us do a security sweep. So they had a bomb dog uh, come and sniff all our backpacks, our cameras, and and all our gear. And once all that was done, we boarded up the buses and headed off to uh, where the social media building is. So I don't know if a lot of people out there really know how Kennedy Space Center is really laid out. But what Kennedy Space Center is, it's basically really a large chunk of land. And so there's a public portion of it, and there's a lot of it that's closed off to the public. So if you were to drive in from the west of the Kennedy Space Center, so sort of near Titusville, Florida, you would be driving into the public area. So there they have the Kennedy Space Center Visitors Complex, where you can visit the Atlantis Space Shuttle, but also there's other areas that are under development. Uh, Companies like Blue Origin by Jeff Bezos from Amazon are building up new facilities around there for their companies. But there are more restricted facilities from NASA like the Vehicle Assembly Building and these types of buildings are all off-limits to the public but using my social media credentials we were able to actually gain access to these buildings so once we entered the restricted area of Kennedy Space Center there it was the beauty itself the Vehicle Assembly Building now I know that a lot of pictures show just how tall and how massive it is, but until you actually see it, you don't really understand the immense scale of it. There's an American flag painted onto the side of the Vehicle Assembly Building, and that flag is 209 feet tall. Each star on that flag is about 6 feet in diameter. So if you can get a sense of scale about how big that flag is, You can just imagine that the Vehicle Assembly Building is only about four or five times larger than that flag itself. So the Vehicle Assembly Building is 52 stories tall. And one thing that I thought was interesting, and this was a misconception that I had coming in, is that you see a lot of pictures of the inside of the Vehicle Assembly Building. So you might see pictures of the Saturn V rocket, the rocket that took the Apollo missions to the moon. Or you might see some images of the space shuttle itself being assembled inside. But usually you only see one pod or one of the corridors within the vehicle assembly building. But that's really just a misconception because there's really actually four different bays inside the vehicle assembly building. And each of those four bays plays an important role in how the VAB has evolved over the past decades from serving as the main building for the Apollo Saturn V missions to helping to build the shuttle missions to even now they're retrofitting the VAB to support the upcoming SLS, the Space Launch Systems rocket for NASA. So it's very interesting to see how although i thought that there would be only one bay there's really four bays inside the vab which just adds to the immense scale and just sheer massiveness of this building i have pictures up on my flickr account Uh, if they aren't up yet they will be up very soon Uh, but feel free to check those out i have some photos that try and show just the scale of it Uh, there's one photo that i find particularly striking because if you look in the near bottom left corner, you'll see that there's just a person standing there. And you can just see how tall that person makes it up onto the support structure of the VAB. And so if you just keep stacking that one person up and up and up and up, well, you'll find that well, you, you would need a lot of people to get up to the top there. Now, inside of the VAB, there's actually a couple different uh, pieces of equipment that are very interesting. So, when NASA was building the space shuttle, they had to make the shuttle vertical. And in order to hoist the shuttle uh, to support it, they had to have two separate cranes inside the VAB to hold it up. So, there's one crane in a lower bay that held up the tail of the space shuttle, And there was a second crane near the top, the very top of the high bay part. And that crane actually held up the nose of the space shuttle. So those two cranes worked in conjunction with each other to help support the shuttle and to help to attach the SRBs and the fuel tank to the space shuttle itself. Now, there are still remnants of the Apollo missions inside the VAB. So inside you can see the old red uh, support structures that were used to help build the Saturn V rocket. Now, although those structures have been there since the 60s, it's actually more expensive to remove them than just to leave them there. So it's interesting to see just, uh, I was born in 1996, so it's neat to see how just a piece of history is just still part of that and how I was even able to see how a piece of history like that is still attached to its original structure now we didn't start off our tour or our day on Saturday with the VAB in fact we started off by going out to launch pad 39B so right now there are three launch pads uh, by NASA the launch pad 39A 39B and 39C so I'll quickly discuss uh, the three different launch pads there are. So, launch pad 39A is uh, currently being leased out by SpaceX, and they are currently retrofitting that launch pad to work with their Falcon Heavy rocket. So, 39A was originally the launch pad for the shuttle missions, and basically, if you saw a shuttle mission, if you see any pictures of the launches, that's going to be 39A. And so SpaceX is sort of building off that capability and that history that exists at 39A to support their Falcon Heavy rocket. Now moving on to 39B, this is one of the original launch pads that NASA built. Uh, 39B helped uh, launch shuttle missions and also helped to launch uh, Saturn V Apollo missions. It's sort of weird because I was actually able to stand out there on the pad and just to kind of think about How many of the rockets that NASA launched, launched from that very location. And for me to be standing right there, I mean, it's, it's very surreal for me. So one thing many people sort of forget about is how rockets get out to the launch pad. So earlier I was just talking about the VAB, how NASA builds their rockets inside that massive building. But NASA also launches the rockets from the launch pad. So how do they get them there? Well, NASA uses a crawler system. Basically, it's sort of like a very large tank. Uh, This tank carries all the equipment needed for the rocket to launch. NASA used a crawler for the Apollo mission to roll out the Saturn V rocket from the VAB out to the launch pad. And that crawler still exists today. So, on our bus ride out to 39B, we passed by the Apollo crawler which took the Saturn V rocket out to the launch pad which enabled all the astronauts uh, to travel to the moon. So that crawler gets a whopping 32 feet to the gallon. That's a bit more of a gas guzzler than your Hummer. But uh, that crawler enabled the rocket to make it all the way from the VAB to the launch pad. So despite all that Uh, Gas inefficiency, it is a beast of a vehicle to move a rocket, uh, really any distance at all. But beside that, the Apollo Crawler actually carried all the equipment needed for the Saturn V rocket to launch. So it had the actual tower that the astronauts would go up in to board the rocket. But they changed that with the shuttle, and they kept all the tower and all that equipment out at the pad. Now with the SLS uh, NASA is going back to a clean pad which is exactly how Apollo did it in that the crawler itself will host all the equipment needed. Now one funny thing about the crawler for SLS is that it was originally made to be used with the Constellation program which is a rocket that was canceled a couple years ago. Now the Constellation is sort of the precursor to the SLS rocket and a lot of infrastructure at NASA has been built up around the idea of Constellation. So NASA is currently retrofitting that crawler to help support the SLS and also at 39B, three lightning towers were installed to help support Constellation but now that will help to support the SLS rocket. So those lightning towers are 600 feet tall, each of which has high-speed cameras to help locate lightning strikes around the area. So these lightning poles are very sophisticated and they essentially provide a Faraday cage around the rocket. There's a system of cables that connect the towers above the launch pad and every single time SLS will launch, there's a pentagonal hole that the rocket will launch through. And right next to Launch Pad 39B is Launch Pad 39C. And this may be of uh, particular interest to some of our most avid listeners, those who are uh, part of the CubeSat community or small satellite community. But 39C uh, got unveiled, uh, I believe, a year ago. And this Launch Pad is located directly next to 39B. Uh, It's a lot closer than you may think, actually. 39A and B are quite a distance away, but B and C are very, very close. 39C isn't nearly as big as A or B, but it's designed to, to instead support small satellite launches. So those rockets don't need to be as large as SLS or Falcon 9, but they instead need to be small enough to uh, basically have a small area to launch from so it's very interesting to see how kennedy space center a nasa has developed a dedicated launch pad to help support those services and help support those missions so it, in a way kennedy space center truly is becoming uh, what they say is america's spaceport now after we visited launch pad 39b We went ahead and visited the international space station processing facility so this facility is where equipment that goes to the international space station it has to go through that building so whether it's with spacex or with soyuz it goes through there Uh, while we were there we actually got to tour into their quote clean room unquote basically when we were there it wasn't really active or anything but When it is active, it's able to be a class 10,000 clean room. In there they have equipment that will be going to the International Space Station on upcoming missions, but also they had the International Docking Adapter number 3. So International Docking Adapters are the new standard to be used on the ISS future missions, uh, future space stations, or really anything in between. This in, this international standard has been agreed upon by several different uh, nations, agencies, and companies as a single way for spacecraft to dock with each other, which it would be great to have. <laughs> if you can think about uh, how people interact with doors every day, could you imagine if there was a different standard for doors? It just wouldn't work. And it wouldn't work in space either with spacecraft. So... This international docking adapter is standardizing how spacecraft dock with each other. Now, there were three docking adapters uh, being built. The first docking adapter was originally going to be installed onto the International Space Station uh, via the SpaceX CRS-7 launch. However, that launch did end up in a failure, so the first international docking adapter was lost. But International Docking Adapter Number 2 was sent up with the SpaceX CRS 9 mission just this past weekend. And so that was a successful launch, and hopefully, we'll be seeing the installation of that adapter very soon. Now, the one that we saw in the International Space Station Processing Facility is the International Docking Adapter Number 3, which we were told is scheduled to be launched to the ISS. In about March 2017. Now it's interesting to see how that flight model is going to be the actual hardware that will be installed onto a rocket sent up into space and installed onto the International Space Station. Now, that's just plain cool. Alongside the flight model of the IDA number 3 they had a 3d printed mock-up now, this was something of particular interest to me and some of the other social media members because 3D printing is slowly becoming something that more and more companies and makers, uh, developers, uh, and engineers use on a daily basis. 3D printing helps engineers like myself to visualize and help design uh, new hardware, um, how to design this our CubeSat missions, actually, But it's interesting to see how a company like Boeing is able to take 3D printing and to actually use it to visualize how pieces of the IDA number three will go together. So they use it to help visualize and put together the different pieces. So they can go to manufacturers and say, hey, this won't work or this simply just won't fit here. Is there a way around this? So that sort of struck a tune with me because uh, we are running into similar uh, problems and issues here at the lab uh, designing our own CubeSat mission. So knowing that uh, even Boeing runs into issues like that uh, tells me that we're on the right track anyway. But uh, beyond that, we learned a lot about the docking adapter and the standard more at the press conference uh, the following day. Now that day started on Sunday, and because of the very late launch at twelve forty-five a.m., uh, we started our tours and our briefings at about three, at about one thirty p.m. And so once we, once the NASA social media crew got there, uh, we all piled up into our buses again after the dog uh, sniffed all our backpacks and all our equipment, and we actually headed to the press conference. Uh, for the to learn about what's going up in SpaceX CRS-9. Now there, uh, we got to learn about uh, different equipment, uh, like the first uh, DNA sequencer going up to the International Space Station to studying heart cells. So these different experiments are all biological in nature, and I can't really put into justice the full scope of these missions and these experiments. But one of the friends I made at the NASA Social, Emily Mullen, writes for Forbes, and she has a very nice article she wrote up about those missions and about what all that can mean for us here on Earth. So if you want, uh, go check that article out, and she can go much more in depth and much more in detail than I ever could about those missions. After that press conference, we actually all piled back up on that bus, and waited to get our clearance to go to the launch pad of the Falcon 9. So SpaceX has a launch pad, launch pad number 40, at NASA Kennedy Space Center, and that launch pad uh, is the home of the Falcon 9 and all those launches from the East Coast. So once we received clearance to go go ahead and head out, I started taking lots of, lots and lots of pictures. On our way out there, we followed the basic track of what the crawler would go past uh, on their way to the launch pads 39A and 39B. Now these paths are unique because they're essentially gravel stones. And it's interesting to think about how these multimillion dollar rockets and even the crawlers are going across what is essentially just rock. And there's a reason for this. Due to the sheer weight of the whole system, the rocket, and the crawler, only gravel can really support all that weight and uh, distribute that evenly. If they go over concrete or asphalt, it'll simply crack and actually break the treads. So these stones are uh, very, very large, about the size of a mandarin orange. It's very interesting to see how... uh, just how big these rocks are, and and actually how deep they go into the ground. But all that aside, we finally made it out to launch pad number 40, the home of the Falcon 9. And we were only given about 10 to 15 minutes to take pictures of the Falcon 9 to learn more about the launch pad and just to take a look around. Uh, The reason for this is because SpaceX is a private company and they have to really hold up to their deadlines and they have a pretty strict schedule they have to stick to. So keeping social media or media out there for too long or bringing them in too soon could prove uh, troublesome, especially if they don't have equipment in the right place. Or even due to ITAR restrictions, they might have to uh, actually hide some things from us, from our prying eyes. But uh, once we got there, we got very close to the rocket. I want to say I was about 500 feet uh, from the Falcon 9 itself, so very, very close. And nothing really prepares you for how big it really is. Uh, You see pictures of the Falcon 9 and it sort of just looks like a pencil, but there's no real way of thinking about how big it really is. Um, And I'm not really sure if I can even explain it in words. But I do have some pictures on my Flickr account that you can take a look at, and that should help give you a sense of scale. Because at the very bottom of the rocket is a couple of people. And you can just see how big the rocket is in comparison to those people. And that is just mind-blowing. Just the sheer size of this rocket and how SpaceX is able to bring it back to land and land it. So uh, on our way out, after we took all our pictures and SpaceX was uh, shuffling us out of the pad, I noticed some other things out there near uh, the pad. I took some pictures of the Rocket Road sign. But also of particular interest is the SpaceX food truck. So uh, I don't think many people know, but but SpaceX actually has their own food truck. And so I can only imagine what they do with it. But having a cookout meal out at uh, launch pad number 40 right next to the Falcon 9 would uh, that sounds fun to me. So basically after we left the launch pad, that was basically the end of Sunday and it was just a matter of waiting until the actual launch itself. So we got out there around midnight and uh, NASA took us out to the NASA causeway. There was some concern due to weather of whether we would be able to go there Uh, The risk was because if the Falcon actually had to abort the mission mid-flight, there was a risk that due to the wind, the Dragon capsule could actually have returned to Kennedy Space Center and landed on land. And uh, just because the Dragon can't control itself during that, um, we would have had to been elsewhere in order to, well, not die. But uh, we were able to get out to the NASA causeway and have a simply beautiful view of the launch itself. Um, I know, counting down to the launch, a lot of us out there did some Facebook Live events. Uh, I had a little bit of a failure my first time, but I uh, got something going there towards the end. And nothing really prepares you for the launch itself. It's loud, it's bright. A lot of emotions going through uh, your brain your body Um, for me it was more of I was having a real blast uh, learning all about the NASA equipment NASA facilities and just hanging out with some great people and just watching the launch I knew that well all that fun was slowly going to end very soon but I've never seen a rocket launch before and this was something definitely something that I would remember forever Now, because it was a night launch, uh, we were actually able to just barely make out the lighting of the second stage itself. Um, We got to see all the first stage uh, go all the way up, cut out, separate, and do its boost back burn. Um, Because we were about three miles out, which is about the closest they let humans to be uh, to the launch pad, it looked like the rocket was going to land right on top of us. We were all looking around each other thinking if we should run, but uh, we trusted SpaceX and the engineers there, and uh, it proved to be very successful. As the rocket descended through the atmosphere, it's traveling, uh, faster, it's traveling faster than the speed of sound. That means that when it slowed down, there were three sonic booms. Uh, once the first stage landed back on land at the uh, on the landing pad, uh, we all were cheering and we're all very happy. So that was my experience with the NASA Social for CRS-9. I had a lot of fun. Thank you to NASA Social for uh, inviting me and letting me be a part of that great experience. Um, I met some great people. I, I'm still in contact with them. And I would love to do this again. I would definitely recommend this to any of you guys to uh, apply and be part of a NASA social. I believe the next one is going to be uh, a Star Trek-themed NASA social, and uh, I would recommend going ahead and applying for that. Uh, if you just want to have fun, learn about NASA, and just report on it, it's you learn a lot, and, well, it's a great experience. And I would definitely recommend it. If you guys have any more questions about CRS 9, my experience with NASA Social, um, or anything along those lines, uh, feel free to drop me a line. You can find me on Twitter at Graham Grable, or you can even tweet us here at the lab at UGA Lab. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Downlink, brought to you by the University of Georgia Small Satellite Research Laboratory. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at UGA SmallSat Lab. Until next time, over and out.